no distressed firms are willing to work on crypto. It's like yourselves, like no event companies are willing to work on crypto. Like there's too much reputational damage. Like they don't know about crypto. They don't, they think crypto is bullshit or whatever. Sorry, now I'm cursing your pod. But so, so it was like, it was like Greenfield, you know, it's like, if you can make it professional and you can jump in the space, like the incumbents will basically just leave it for you to do. This episode is brought to you by Circle, the issuer of USDC, which hopefully, as you all know, is the preferred stablecoin of digital natives and crypto natives with over 1.5 million holders globally. You'll hear more about USDC later in the show. Welcome back. Yeah, well, welcome back to another episode of Empire. We have uh, we have Thomas. Uh, I, I don't really know exactly what Thomas does, except that he is the best uh, investor who invests at like the intersection of distressed uh, distressed asset investing and crypto have known Thomas for years, um, got connected with Thomas, maybe I want to say 2018, possibly Thomas or 2017 through some like Mt. Gox claims stuff and have just kept in touch since. So Thomas, welcome to uh, Empire, my friend. Dude, thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me on. And uh, like, I don't know how we met. I think I just showed up at a Bloxburg event and I like explained myself and you were like, oh, that's kind of cool. I remember early on you were asking me about Ah, oh, that makes sense. You were asking me about your business. And I can't remember if you guys ever raised VC money, but you asked me if you should raise VC money. And I said, no, <laughs> and I don't know what happened. We, what did you decide? We, we took your advice. We took your advice. We never, we no, never raised that. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I wasn't sure. Because of you. But I was friend. like, honestly, I'm talking against my own book here, but you should, no, I'm sure you spoke to a million people. But I was like, if you can like, make the cash flow <laughs> from the event business, like don't. Yeah, all, all because of you, my friend. So anyways, um, I think it'd be a helpful place to start. I want to, obviously, I'm sure we'll end this conversation talking about FTX, but there are a lot of other distressed assets in crypto, uh, starting with Mt. Gox. There's also stuff around Celsius. Um, I think it'd be helpful to, to, to just get like a lay of the land. I know very little about this topic, so I'm going to ask some really, really dumb, like five-year-old questions here. Um, and, I, and I think let's start off with the easiest one, which is just like, what is distressed investing? And is, and is that even the best characterization of what you do? Yeah, so I, I work for a large family office principally. That's my principal job, um, trying to deploy their capital. They have, of course, final investment decision and they really control the strings. Um, but I have my own company, which is 507. So what does 507 do? We do that. And we also like try to broker and, and you know, some, not really act as bankers, but but basically facilitators of deals in the distressed world and I guess sort of special situation capital raising. So what does that mean? It generally means, I think it's better to characterize as special situation investing. Um, it, 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 you have this intersection of when companies are need capital and, and, and uh, you know, what's going on in the markets and you have banks that won't touch it. And then you sort of, you, you get in no man's land. The no man's land is where, where we normally operate. Um, where there's no there's no dearth of capital, and um, and you sort of have to figure things out from a first principles perspective, and that's that's distressed. I mean, you look at Howard Marks at Oak Tree and the memos he writes, and other people like you know Seth Klarman at Balpost or even Warren Buffett. But Warren Buffett sort of um, is probably a bit more just totally in the value camp, um, and they're all kind of flavors of value. Um, and as someone. Uh, rightly said, you know, all intelligent investing is value investing. Just like, what's your definition of value? Um, I think to a distressed person, it's normally like very asset driven, very balance sheet driven. Um, 
and also like very opportunistic. So the fun part about distress and special situation investing is you're always learning about new areas. And for myself, it was the same. Like I came into distress, uh, distress crypto through Mt. Gox. Um, and you know, for me as someone who has nothing to add to the world, <laughs> I would think that the intersection of distressed and crypto is kind of like a unique and interesting area. Um, where there's a ton of unsettled case law and it's a growing industry. I always thought there would be cycles in crypto because it's such a cyclical thing. If you look at the whatever, you know, if you look at uh, uh, like Plan B's models, you know, the, the the stock to flow models or anything like it's hugely volatile. And so that all that volatility comes a lot of, you know, full cycles and the full cycles lead to distress cycles. So again, I, I told you I'm going to ask some, uh, some five-year-old questions here. So let's use Mt. Gox as an example. So yeah. Walk me through basically, like you're explaining like different levels, like there's, you know, you could buy a Bitcoin for like a third of the price. People are loading up right. on the claims. You have creditors, you have the liabilities. Can you almost like just walk me through how with Mt. Gox specifically, like how that unfolded uh, le leading us forward to today? Like how, how did you start buying claims? Who who were the, who got the claims? Who who had the trust? Like who are the trustees basically? Do those get okay, traded? So it was a, it was a Japanese, market? yeah. So there was yeah. a Japanese insolvency filed in Japan, and um, and there was what's called a Chapter Fifteen in the states, which recognized the foreign proceeding as the main proceeding. Those are the main like things that were going on. There was a few articles about Malcox, and I'm sure some old OG crypto guys like were involved had had claims, things like that. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't like center stage news, um, and. Uh, there were some early distress guys who tried to make a market in the claims, but like when they filed in 14, like 14, 15, 16, and 17, the trade was okay. Because for the most part, there were guys, like there was a guy, I mean, I'll, he's not doxxed because his name is out there. His name is uh, Josh, Josh Jones, and he ran a thing called Bitcoin Builder. He allowed people to basically trade their Mt. Gox um, account balances. This is pre-petition to the insolvency in 14, like early in 14. And then... Uh, once they filed for bankruptcy, like he was actually buying their claims. I think he had a financier who was helping him buy their claims, but he was buying them for like a third of the market value. He was even less than that, like I think a fourth of the market value. When I say market value, I mean like the look-through value of the crypto they had found. Um, and then, so so it was always kind of like kind of an okay trade, but not that interesting because, I mean, think about it. You're locked in a bankruptcy that could take forever, and yet you're getting Bitcoin at a third of the market price. Now, if you're a total hodler, and you think Bitcoin's going to a million dollars, um, that maybe that's a great trade because now you're making three million for every million, you know, that somebody else makes. But for most distressed or special situation investors, they're thinking like, this is not so great because you don't really know what the IRR is and you don't really know when the exit is. So a lot of people like looked at it in a curious way, but never really touched it. And also it had the live wire being like, dude, if I pitch this to my investment community, I'm going to get like laughed out of the room. So that was all the way, that was 14, 15, 16, and 17. And then 18 happened where there was a bit of a bull run and the trustee sold about um, 40,000 BTC, which was equivalent to about $600 million or 650 million. There was some cash already there, but it's like 600 million. And the total was like $650 million of, um, of uh, it's Japanese yen, but let's just do it in dollars, of US dollars that was raised. So at that point, you were able to basically buy claims 
at like a $400 million valuation when there was even like $650 million of fiat in the estate. And yet there was still about 140,000 Bitcoin left. So all that was freebie. But the question in 18 was, well, maybe Bitcoin is not property. It's just currency. Or maybe it's just a financial contract. So it's not a property. And so you don't get the uplift in value because Bitcoin had gone at the petition date from $483 to at the time, I think about 10 or 12,000 US dollars. So you follow me? So that even though they lost a bunch of the Bitcoin, um, Bitcoin had gone up so much in value that on a dollar basis, you were made whole and then some. But on a crypto basis, of course, you only got back like a, 20, a 25th, you know, you only got back about 25% of the Bitcoin you initially put in. Yep. So, of course, some people always say like, oh, if I had my 100 Bitcoin from Mt. Gox, I'd be worth blah, 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 blah. I'm like, dude, you would have sold that Bitcoin 55 times over. Okay, <laughs> stop with this whole like, you would have never hodled into this for this long. Like you and I both know it, you know, and... So the trade was very interesting in 18. So I, I got a family office. I tried, I literally pitched it to like a hundred firms. Um, and I think some were nice and polite and some were like, this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. But I had one guy who didn't think it was dumb. I thought actually, I thought it was great. He thought it was great. It made imminent sense. And I had other people that thought it was great, but he was thought it was great. And he pulled the trigger. Like he actually put money to work. He didn't just say like, yeah, this sounds great. Call me, email me. You know, you, and then you call an email and the person never responds to you. Like he actually responded. He actually was proactive. We actually got an LLC set up and we did the trade. And so that was the big time to do it. And then marching forward from there, we started working for a large crypto hedge fund to buy these claims that he was affiliated with. Um, and the rest is sort of history. So that trade worked out well. And then from there, I was like, you know what, this is really interesting. Like no distress firms are willing to work on crypto. It's like yourselves, like no event companies are willing to work on crypto. Like there's too much reputational damage. Like they don't know about crypto. They don't, they think crypto is bullshit or whatever. Sorry, now I'm cursing your pod. But so, so it was like, it was like Greenfield, you know, it's like, if you can make it professional and you can jump in the space, like the incumbents will basically just leave it for you to do. So, so I saw that Greenfield opportunity and I basically always kind of had it as a side project on the same time I was working in regular distresses, which is what I still do now. Now that the cycle has come back around in 2022, um, there's an enormous amount of opportunity and it's the same yeah. rhyming theme. Before getting into some of that stuff, so with so with Mt. Gox, how did so in twenty eighteen you guys put capital to work? How much money did you guys invest buying up the claims? Not a lot, not, not a lot, like a few million dollars. And, and but then when the when they started paying out the Bitcoin in what 2021, 2020? This no, year, they haven't paid it remember. out yet. They had, they so haven't, so they they're haven't. they're two they're two dockets. One is Mt. Gox and one is Bitcoinica and one is Bitcoin Builder. So Bitcoin Builder, this Josh Jones guy, he's one of the largest creditors in Mt. Gox. So you can buy claims in Bitcoin Builder, you can buy claims in Mt. Gox, and you could potentially buy claims in um, in this thing called Bitcoinica. The problem with Bitcoinica is the claims are not accepted yet, so it's a little more complicated. But basically, we invested a few million dollars at a valuation of maybe four to $600 per claim value. And now the claim, even with the pullback in crypto is probably about $6,000 per, 
per claim. So you can do the math. You're basically made like a 10x, 12x, whatever you want to call it. Um, that's what that's today. You know, I mean, it was there was a time when it was like 40 or whatever it was. Now it's it's come back a lot. Um, and it but, was you, know, you, it was you guys doing this, and it and it was also uh, and it was also fortress. It was nobody, right? It was, so it was myself and you know my business partner, five hundred seven, and a small family office. Or I shouldn't say small, but a, a you know relatively in the world of finance, a small family office. And fortress showed up. So so I say this on the record because who cares at this point? I pitched this deal to everybody. I pitched it to definitely pitched it to fortress, and I definitely pitched it to Winces at at uh at um help me out zappo i cannot hardly remember it because they don't exist anymore i guess um and like six months later after pitching like everybody some guy shows up in in uh in uh in tokyo and he is from fortress and looking to potentially buy claims so yes later on fortress showed up later in 18 um they showed up but i think it's because we were pitching it all over town and the guy that works at Fortress, his brother works at the place called Fulcrum Securities, which is like a distressed brokerage. So I think he got wind of us like pitching this trade all over town. Um, but nonetheless, yeah, they showed up later in the, in the in the trade, and then they bid. We were bidding like four or five hundred per claim. They bid like six, seven, eight, nine hundred per claim. So they still got, and they they put a lot more capital on, but at, at like double, triple prices to what we paid. Hmm. How many how many creditors? Or how many folks? I don't even know the right language to use here. How many folks had? Yeah, how many original creditors? Yeah, so fourteen thousand, about fourteen thousand creditors. So when you look at uh, Celsius, Voyager, and FTX, it's like nothing, right? Fourteen thousand creditors—that's nothing. I mean, you're talking about in, in those cases, yeah. it's hundreds of thousands of creditors. Um, and how many creditors uh, are there now? Or how many? Because because those have been consolidated into you know five hundred seven right. bought them. Fortresses bought them. How many are there? Bought now? them. It'd be hard. I don't. I'm sure you could find out by going to the Japanese court because you can go and see the documents in person. Apparently, like the creditor list, at least. Um, but we've never taken the time to do it, and you can't transfer claims now anyway, so it's kind of irrelevant. Um, but uh, I don't know. But they bought at least ten percent of the docket. Um, so. Hmm. I, don't, I think they bought the larger ones. So it, there's probably a lot of, there's a lot of really small creditors in Mt. Cox. Um, just like in, if you looked at Celsius and Voyager, there's a lot of like bifurcation. If you looked at the top like thousand, you know, customers versus the bottom 10,000, right. it'd be like nothing right. versus like a huge. Yeah, they're big parallel play. Yeah. yeah, big parallel play. But, but um, there's, a, there's a big chunk that's owned by us, by Fortress, by Bicornica. And so if you look at those three blocks and you sort of think of even other brokers that probably bought stuff, uh, there's a decent chunk, probably a third of the docket that's been bought up by claim buyers. Hmm. So I think there's a fear that when these actually get paid out, that's going to tank the market because so I'm, so I'm just curious, like, A, when, when, when does the Mt. Cox Bitcoin actually get paid out? How much is it going to, how much is actually going to get paid really out and, and then see, yeah. And then see like, will you, what do you plan on doing with that Bitcoin? Will you sell it immediately? Will you hold it? And how much, like, what's the impact on the market? So kind of a three-part question there. I have kind of a differentiated view, I guess, because I'm so close to it that I kind of think that anybody that's sold all the weekends have sold. <laughs> like that's one thing. Hmm. And then in addition to that, if you think about the money coming off, 
there are a number of pockets that are going to go to with people that have extremely low bases. And so when you have a super low basis, what I've realized in crypto or in probably any asset, you start thinking of ways to reapothecate without generating taxes. And so I think a lot of big holders of whales in that case um, are thinking like, okay, either they already sold, they moved to a low tax jurisdiction and then they sold, or they're holding. And when they get it, the first thing you're going to do, well, hopefully Genesis is still around, but Genesis, they're going to call Genesis, they're going to call um, you know, Unchained Capital or you name the lender. And they're going to be like, hey, I have $40 million in Bitcoin. I'd really like to you know, borrow against it. So I'm not saying that's what we'll do because ours is totally different. It's all client money. It's going to go to the clients. The clients figure out what they do. We get our cut as a promote. But, um, but for a lot of the OG guys that hold, held on to their Bitcoin, that's what they'll do. And then Bitcoinica is kind of interesting because they're a large creditor and they're not going anywhere. The Bitcoinica estate is going to take another three to five years after Mt. Gox pays out. So it's not like mm. all that money's going to hit the market. In fact, a number of those pockets of the market are going to be pulled offline because uh, Bitcoinica is not going to come online. A lot of the whales aren't going to come online. And um, I don't know really what Fortress is going to do. I heard that they hedged, but I just don't know. It's like so rumorish. I mean, I speak with the guys there from time to time or the guy, the sort of point guy on the trade for them um, from time to time. But I can't really make heads or tails of it. He doesn't want to tell me and he shouldn't, he didn't have to tell me. He doesn't, you know, it's not, he should do his thing. But I, I, it would be hard for me to believe that they would just dump it on the market. Them hedging or selling, you know, using their balance sheet and selling ball against their position, um, I think is probably what they might've considered or done. But I don't think they're just going to dump it on the market. Anything else that, oh, that the you're time, looking you at? Oh, the timetable? Yes, yes. You're t- okay, so... What we hear, and this is, you know, just from participants, I shouldn't say who they are because it would kind of give away, you know, stuff they probably don't want that's out there. So we have heard early payouts. So these are people that decide for early payouts. They get a lower cut. So technically you get like a 21% payout if you do an early payout, but you get like a 23% payout if you do a late payout or final payout. So we've all done the final, we've done all the final payouts. So that's what our investors wanted. For us, uh, so for early payouts, we've heard early 2023. And for late payouts, we've heard late 2023, early 2024. Um, so every year it's like, okay, come on, this is going to happen. So my wife, I, you know, I'm married. And my wife, uh, at this point, I'm, I sort of stopped talking about it because I'm just like, you know what, one day it's going to happen. But so every year it's, it's, it's the next year. That's what I, I should say. There's, and it's, yeah, it's not because it's crypto. Well, it's not because it's crypto. It's because it's, it's because it's Japan. It has nothing to do with crypto. Yeah. It's, it's every, it's, it's every bit of a fault of the Japanese legal system, which if you ever go to a creditor meeting, you'll know what I mean, which is you sit there, they don't, exp- they don't, they, there's no arguing. There's no motion practice. Like you've seen in the States. It's just, the trustee comes out, he tells you what's going to happen. And the judges literally, the, the trustee sits in the middle, the judges sit on the side and they nod while the trustee talks. So it's very a weird system. All right, everyone, time for a quick word from Circle and USDC. As a crypto user, you know the power of stable coins, dollar digital currencies that transcend borders, banking hours, and legacy financial rails. Well, Circle's USDC has quickly become one of the most trusted and widely used stable coins. It's simple, 
People use USDC because of its composability, its stability, and its reserve transparency. And USDC isn't just adopted by a few of us DeFi DGENs and DAOs and NFT marketplaces, crypto companies alike, they all leverage USDC to diversify their treasury, asset management, and ecosystem-wide composability. The adoption's clear. USDC's grown to more than $50 billion in circulation since launching in 2018. We all have and we all will continue to take shots on our favorite volatile crypto assets, obviously, but USDC is one of the easiest ways to store your funds in a stable asset that can be used to send value around the world almost instantly. It lowers the cost of cross-border payments. It integrates into the growing ecosystem of crypto apps. As a seamless, trusted dollar digital currency, USDC is a zero to one opportunity for the financial system. If you want to learn more about USDC, I would recommend you check out the recently published Transparency Hub on Circle.com. It's a great update to Circle's content on USDC. It outlines everything from links to their weekly reserve reports, monthly attestations, blog posts that are written by their exec team that highlight how and why USDC was built the way it is. Really recommend it. Just go to Circle.com backslash transparency to access it. Now, let's get back to the show. All right, so let's fast forward from Outgox to this year. So we've got Terra, we've got Terra and Luna. Then we also have three arrows. We also have mm-hmm. Celsius. Let's play in like that May, June bucket of this year. Where did you see room for opportunity? So Celsius, I didn't really, wasn't trying to buy claims. And then, uh, you know, fast forward, then uh, I think Voyager had filed a few weeks earlier. And we sort of were watching the two dockets and it was kind of interesting. And every now and then someone would call us with a claim or someone would call us about something. And then I had a few friends because I knew all these people from crypto, from Mt. Gox. And a few friends that were tied up in claims. And I would give them a little advice here and there. And then I started thinking like, you know what? These are interesting, but these are all like customer accounts. I don't really want to get involved with customers. I don't want people to think I'm like sniping claims. Like I'm rather just like get my, get my sort of uh, profile out there by being involved in these communities. But at the same time, really look for private deals, you know? Traditionally, you would have MPLs and, um, you know, non-performing loans and like any distress cycle, you'd have non-performing loans, and like people trying to sell assets cheaply and other opportunities, tertiary things that don't have to be like big public dockets. So I started focusing on that. And then when FTX sort of was boiling up and, and fuming, I was really working on these like private loan restructurings. And then when FTX happened, I was like, whoa, this is like a big boy situation. And a lot of people started calling and a lot of claimants started calling and big claimants, not like small claimants, big claimants. And so we started trying to look to deploy capital and trying to see if we could get involved. And uh, there's a lot of nuance between the different cases and I'm happy to talk about them, but that's how I got sucked into the recent um, run of things that are public. Who, who are the big players that are that are calling? The big players, I mean, basically every distress firm uh, wants to be a part of this distress cycle in crypto, which is good to see because I suppose it's part of the ecosystem. Um, You can't be mad at them. In fact, you need them. Like they're the opportunistic capital that comes in when no one will touch anything. Um, But the value, the delta in valuation between what they will pay and the, the VC firm, you know, like what the GARP investor will pay versus like the opportunistic, like credit investor will pay that's like a golf so people get really scared in that like big move uh but um it's nice to see that they're showing up but of course they're still getting tooled up i mean 
I'm flattered that they would call little old me and ask me like, you know, about crypto or stable coins or FTX or whatever. And, uh, but I guess it's kind of like, it's kind of, it's, it's, I'm flattered that it's happening. Um, uh, I kind of thought it would happen and I'm, I'm glad to see that, you know, I wasn't totally yeah. wrong, but I don't want to see like total destruction. I mean, you know, especially when it's like individuals. I mean, I think in FTX is weird because it's all professional traders. And of course, I feel for people losing their money that they've worked hard to earn. But, you know, in Celsius and Voyager, the stories were even worse. I mean, especially in Celsius, for some reason, there was a lot of personal stories that I came across with people that were severely impacted, like financially, you know, people that were just trying to save save their for retirement and things like that. It's very, very different in, in uh, FTX. It's a lot of professional trading firms and professional traders. Hmm. So when you, when you bid on something, it, or I guess if, I don't know how much, I don't know how much you want to talk about the, like what, what, what you're actually bidding on. But I'll like talk if, about if you it. bid on, so, so Celsius, have you, have you bid on Celsius? I've been on a few claims. I've been on a few big claims. Uh, normally we're not actively soliciting, but if someone's a really big claim, I'm like, look, we're not really bidding, but you have a very large claim. It's like $16 million. So if you ever wanted to sell it, like, please like consider us, like I would try my best to give you the best price. And if someone gave you a better price, I would tell you, Hey, go take that price. I can't match it. And like, so the way I pitch this to myself is like, Hey, I can help you make a market and get the best price. And if that guy is giving you crappy documents, maybe I can give you better documents, but, but the same price or lower price or the same price, but better documents. So I try to position myself as like, I'm just part of the ecosystem. So there's no reason not to involve me. And I like to think I'll be totally straight with you and transparent and um, hopefully be able to help. But for smaller claimants, like we really try not to get involved. I mean, for myself, there was a time when I was quite involved in the community and I still, I'm happy to answer anybody's questions if they DM me. I really try to respond um, or on like Telegram and things like that. And so I do feel a responsibility to do that. Um, but I try not to be too aggressive with like, you know, like, hey, and I definitely don't do the whole like aggressive, like, oh, you're gonna lose all your money. You don't know what you're doing. Like I hate that kind of sales pitchy stuff. And we really stay away from that. Uh, and a Voyager the same. We, we're not actively buying claims, but there's been one or two that have popped up in some weird way. Like one was positioned on a marketplace that my friend runs and I saw it and I was like, wait, dude, what are you doing with a claim on a CFI like exchange? Like, come on, man. And he was like, oh, it's so easy. I love using the app. Like, it's just so easy. It's not a lot of my money, but of course, like, it's just easy to do it. And like, you know, that's, that's my life. Like, I don't have time to like, like private cold storage, everything. And uh, I was like, well, dude, I would totally buy this. And so we sort of negotiated it off the platform. And then I went back on, I don't want my friends to not make their fee. So I was like, okay, I'll buy it on the platform. So, but we're not active. We don't actively search it, but if someone has a whale claim, like we'll consider it. And I'm always also happy to like facilitate like people, you yeah. know, sort of to the right buyer. And, and the way that that works to just to, again, simple questions here. Uh, for a complex no, thing is the way that that works is let, let's say someone has a hundred, let's say someone has a, a claim on a hundred million dollars of Celsius assets. Those are assets that no. may or may not come back to them. A hundred million dollars of assets <laughs> that they have a claim on. You will tell them, you will put in a bid for that. So you'll say, Hey, uh, I think there's a 10% 
I think there's a 50, I personally think there's a 15% likelihood that those, that that capital comes back. So the value of those assets in my mind are 15 million. I'll put in a bid at like 10 million, $10 million. Is that roughly how it works? Yes. I'm normally very transparent with people about what I think the recovery is. And then I just tell them like, this is going to take this long and I need to get a discount to that. And there's also risk. So Hmm. let's take, I mean, we can do Celsius. Celsius, maybe it's like high 30s, low 40s. So what can I pay for that? High teens, high 20s, low 20s, sorry, low 20s, maybe mid 20s, maybe. But uh, the FTX connections, I need a discount. So maybe let's say the return is 35 cents on the dollar, which is not that far off, probably what they are. 35 And what's the timeline? What's the timeline there? It's hard to say right now. There's been a lot of smoke or you know, uncertainty with the FTX filing. But there's no reason, like if Celsius can't find a buyer, which I highly doubt they will find a buyer at this point. I mean, maybe CZ shows up and buys them, but I think he probably just lets it liquidate. Um, maybe he shows up and buys it. Because I mean, think about it. Like if you buy FTX, or excuse me, if you buy Celsius or you buy Voyager, it's basically like a customer acquisition strategy. Like, can I buy this cheaper or can I... Can I, can I build this and acquire these customers for a thousand dollars a customer, or can I just acquire them by buying this platform? So I don't know if there's a buyer at this point, I think a TradFi institution should show up in these cases, but I thought that early on with Celsius or excuse me with Voyager. And then when I got deeper into talking to TradFi people about bidding on Celsius and Voyager, they all looked at me like I was crazy and they were just like, what? Like, I don't even know, like, we don't have an operating team. Like we don't know about crypto. So maybe as things get deeper, uh, they consider it, but it's not going to be for high numbers. It would just be like for liquidity purposes. So maybe Celsius takes another year before they start distributing crypto. Um, and it would be in dribs and drabs. Like it would be like a 5% dividend and like a 10% and another 10%. So the 30% or 40% you could get could take like, Next year, you get 10%. And the year after, you get another 10%. And the year after that, you get another 10%. You follow me? So if they if no one buys them and they just liquidate, it could be a multi-year distribution pattern. Hmm. And you, let's let's fast forward to FTX. You already started buying um, claims on FTX, yeah? For, I, I think I saw three cents on the dollar, huh? I mean, we got very lucky with that one. That's not something that could be repeated. Um, but yeah, the market right now is probably five to six cents um, with a premium for larger how, players how did, and a premium for better. How did you get that? How did you get that, Thomas? Like someone just calls you up and they're like, hey, Come Thomas, on. I know that you're a distressed investor. <laughs> it's just luck, man. It's just like you're in the market. It'd be like trying to get, I don't know, a, a sponsor or something. It's like, oh, it worked out. Like they got dropped from this event and then they said this. So they have this allocation. So they had to use it or lose it. So the so now I got a hundred thousand dollar sponsor. It's literally that. It's like preparation meeting opportunity. So Very what lucky. what's uh what are the claims trading at right now in the secondary? You said five to eight cents. Five to eight. Probably the tighter range is like five to six for smaller claims, and probably like six to eight for larger claims. And it also depends on a few things: what jurisdiction you're in, how clean your claim is in terms of its documentation, preferences, and look and clawback potential. Even though there's probably no clawbacks. And then also like what documents you want. So a few sellers have been like, oh, I want really aggressive privacy stuff. And I, I don't want to sell to a U.S. entity. That's one thing I've heard. Oh, I don't want to 
Uh, I want very aggressive red lines with like very aggressive red lines. And it's like, okay, that's fine. Just so you know, that affects price, you know, like you can't get eight cents or you can't get seven cents for a big claim. If you want ridiculously aggressive red lines to, to, when I say red lines, red lines to a contract between the buyer and the seller, it affects things. You know, it'd be like a sponsor, you know, it's like you, you want all these things. Okay. Well, that's going to cost you a little more. (laughs) Yeah. No, no, yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, the pickier you are, the the more expensive, expensive, obviously it's going to be. Um, how how much yeah. of this do you think about, like where things are domiciled? So, so I again, I, I'm not a lawyer here, but you know, FTX was operating out of the Bahamas. The bankruptcy, as I understand it, is happening in the U.S. And then they have some sort like the trust is in England, some, something like that. Like how how much does the location come into play here? Okay, so it's English law, which is not that surprising because it's. Uh, the originally, my understanding is, so originally it was uh, Antiguan, Antiguan and Barbuda, if I'm saying it right. Uh, so that was some reason moved to the Bahamas. It's quite curious why it was moved. I'd love to learn, and I'm sure that they'll find out as they go through investigations why it was moved. It might have been some pushback from the authorities about wanting to see audited financials and things like that, um, or regulation that they didn't like. Um, but maybe it was innocent and there was no reason. Maybe it was just like, oh, you know, let's just move it because it's easier. And Bahamas was giving us all these free tax breaks or something. <laughs> Who knows? Um, but it was quite curious that it was moved. But in both instances, they were basically, this is not that unusual, but for these sort of offshore, uh, you know, previous Commonwealth countries or even Commonwealth countries, they will use English common law or English law as the jurisdictional backdrop. I mean, as an American, a lot of times people will, especially claims trading, people use uh, New York law because what you're doing is you're looking for certainty and interpretation of your agreement. So with English common law, there's a lot of, you know, or English law, there's, there's a decent amount of certainty about what you're going to get. You don't want to say, oh, let's subject ourselves to Bahamian law. Like there might not be a lot of certainty. And so you, you look for jurisdictions where you have certainty. And so it's not that uncommon to see English common law in contracts. And this nice. one is English common law with Singapore arbitration, which again, is not that uh, unreasonable or suspect. Do you think we could see something that something similar to what Bitfinex did where they, I don't even fully understand what Bitfinex did. They like tokenized their tokenization of like bankruptcy assets, some, something of that sort. So maybe if you could, I don't know what, if you know much no. about what Bitfinex did, but maybe you could explain what they did and then, yeah. Yeah, they basically token, they did like a debt for equity swap, but instead of, I don't know, I don't remember how they passed it by the creditors. Maybe they just all voted on it. I don't even actually know what law jurisdiction or what jurisdiction they used, but um, they're never gonna, they're never going to, um, that's never gonna happen in these cases. Now, there could be a debt for equity swap as part of the bankruptcy, and then someone could tokenize it, or even the bankruptcy courts could sanction the idea of tokenizing it. But um, they're not Why going it to, uh, it, it won't happen in the sense of the way they did it in Bitfinex. I'm not saying they couldn't do a recovery token, because again, a debt for equity swap is all, all, all the, it's, it's a very reasonable thing to be doing. Um, but it would have to be sanctioned by the bankruptcy court. There's no way the estate professionals aren't going to do their full investigation into what happened pre-petition, um, before, um, that would be, that would be happening. And even then 
I just don't see bankruptcy estate professionals going for a tokenization model unless it's really pushed for by the creditors. In FTX, I've heard there's been a lot of talk, but again, it's a lot of professional traders. Unlike Celsius and Voyager, where people are like very, I don't know how to put it, but there's, there's a very different component going on. There's a lot of emotional components where people were individuals that lost a lot of money and they get behind leaders that have different ideas. And I think a tokenization uh, would be interesting in almost all cases, but that's not too different than what the bankruptcy courts have been doing for years, which is in the dot-com bubble, there was two famous bankruptcies. One was CMGI, and I don't know if that actually filed for bankruptcy or if it just went into receivership and into liquidation, but the other big one was Comdisco. So in Comdisco, it was a computer leasing company. And as part of that, they had this big $2 billion venture portfolio and they, they didn't tokenize it, but think about what they did. They basically issued like a recovery certificate, like a unit that was a liquidation trust and a litigation trust, I think in one, and that traded OTC, like over the counter. Um, in America, you could buy it in your Fidelity account. Um, and so you could almost do it. It's, it's kind of like a token, uh, with a registered security. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that's out of the picture. I just think that that's two or three years off in FDX's case at a minimum. And I think yeah. it only makes sense if you want to do it for the venture portfolio for Celsius and Voyager, it doesn't even make sense because what would you be tokenizing? like new co-equity, I'm not sure that the, the new co-equity has any value. It needs to be either sold or liquidated. Mm. So I think it's better what, to just liquidate. What's the name of the second company that had the venture portfolio from the dot-com? So Comdisco is a big one. Comdisco. That was one that see, I... See, that's, a, that's an interesting comparison to FTX because from right. my understanding of that bank, to, of that bankruptcy, the venture portfolio ended up actually returning yes. the amount that made that made the creditors whole, which FTX did. actually you know has this huge venture portfolio. It just took them like a decade to return the amount yep. of capital that made the creditors whole. So you could see it took 14 the years. FTX portfolio. <laughs> yeah, that okay, it took fourteen years. So you could see the venture, the FTX venture portfolio, eventually making everyone whole. But you just got to wait, you know, ten to fifteen years here. So, so I I wish someone would write a case study on it, and someone out there must have done some research on it problem is like i'm too young like i only i'm not that young but i wasn't really around for com disco i only remember when the liquidation trust traded and i remember being like holy crap these guys have made over 100 percent of their return it's in year like 10 and i remember i mean i invested when i ran my hedge fund from like year 10 to 14 i played the liquidation and it was still cheap i made a double on the liquidation if i recall i mean it was a double over four years but it was not a bad play at all so Hmm. That's really interesting. Anything else that we're missing here that you think is really important to, to talk about in terms of just distressed investing, what you're looking at with FTX, Celsius, anything that we're missing here? There's going to be a lot more litigation in FTX than probably Voyager pittance for litigation. Uh, Celsius a little bit more maybe because some insider transactions and some structuring and gifting of tokens to girlfriends or wives and things like that. But that's actually small compared to FTX. I mean, FTX, like, holy crap, like, this guy basically took trust assets and invested it in all kind of stuff. And, you know, I'm not, I mean, you know, I, I guess in this instance, like he's going to, it's going to be, you know, you're going to have to, you potentially are going to have to trace trust assets. 
And there's people talking about bringing actions outside of the bankruptcy court and the Singapore arbitration, which is possible. It's not part of the automatic stay. Um, well, yeah, they separate FTX US and FTX US yes. and FTX International assets. They will separate them. Very likely. Hmm? Yeah. Very likely. What about um? They'll be siloed. Thomas, the one company you haven't mentioned is BlockFi. What happens to BlockFi here? So I don't know exactly what the BlockFi agreement was, but my understanding for the most part was they paid nothing for the equity and they basically gave them a line of credit. Um, so that line of credit is clearly going to be called. And so BlockFi is going to have to file for bankruptcy. But the question is like, is the underlying loan portfolio solvent? If it is, then all it needs is time to mature and they can just either call in the loans or get someone to buy the loan portfolio out. And then maybe they can buy the equity of the business for next to nothing. But the creditors themselves in BlockFi might be fine. I haven't heard anything about their loan book being sour, unlike a Genesis where I, I, yeah, it sounds, it seems like the loan book is very sour. Um, like there are some loans that were in hindsight, not well thought through or underwritten, I guess is the right word. Yeah. That, that was the last place I want to end with this conversation is actually just with Genesis. Um, I mean, just to, timestamp this we're recording this november 21st it's like four in the afternoon yeah, timestamp it um yeah what uh because things are moving so quickly um especially 48 hours do they file what's the question i was just gonna say like what do you o think over happens? under on how many hours do they file yeah yeah know. exactly exactly mm. i mean so black pie has to file it's not their fault like they got bought by a company that now is insolvent so they have really no choice um genesis i don't know i thought that genesis lending was sort of siloed and i used to think of barry stern sternlick sterlick however you say his name i used to think of barry as like kind of a genius um that there's no barry way silbert. that he would cross Barry silbert thank you barry silbert is like a genius and like there's no way he cross contaminated his balance sheets but then i heard stuff on twitter about people saying like oh well you know, DCG guaranteed some billion dollar loan to the sub. If that's true, that's bad. Um, and it does complicate things, but the guarantee would take a long time to call in versus filing the sub and then somebody calling in the guarantee and then you finding the guarantee for six months or 12 months or whatever, but it would be bad and it's bad for sure. So I don't really know. I'm not like, I don't like, I'm not, don't have some special knowledge about uh, Genesis. If in a perfect world, let's say they're all siloed, um, Barry basically files Genesis Lending. In the worst case scenario, if Genesis Lending and Genesis Trading are combined balance sheets, he files both those entities. But DCG Group itself should be fine. The venture portfolio, just the other investments that they have and things at the hold co and things like that. So, so on a, in a perfect world, that's what it looks like. But I've heard some stuff. On Twitter, I don't know if it's true about there being like a guarantee from the parent to the sub, whoever put in capital last time. So I don't deny yeah. or confirm. I, I have no special knowledge on it, but it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, interesting no? indeed. <laughs> awesome, man. This was a, uh, anything else that we're missing here? I feel like this is a good place to wrap, but anything else that we're missing? No, that's, that's pretty much it, man. There's a lot to see what will happen over the next couple of months. Cool. All right, man. Well, always good catching up. Appreciate your time. And uh, I will see you on the other side of all this. Mm -hmm.